We're in John chapter 3, verses 16 to 21. I'm sure there has been uh, a lot of money made off of bumper stickers and badges with this verse on it, and um, along with Jeremiah 29, 11 and Philippians 4, 13, there's probably a few others, your uh, cliche Bible verses that are very well known. And John 3.16 would be arguably the most well-known Bible passage uh, by the whole world. And it will be our duty today to put it back into its context to um, understand much of the beautiful layers that lie underneath it to see how God has indeed loved the world. So I'm going to read out John chapter 3 verses 16 to 21. John 3, 16 to 21, this is God's word. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is God's word. Again, a very well-known passage, and rightly so, it very clearly demonstrates that God is a loving God, not only that he is loving, but a, a bit about how he has loved the world. Now, a few kind of housekeeping things for this text that we should go through before we then look at the various aspects of how God has loved the world. The first is that I believe it's important for us to um, realize who is writing this. And in your Bibles, um, you might have quotation marks that continue at the beginning of verse 16 as if this is still Jesus talking and John the Gospel writer is narrating it. Or if you have a red letter Bible, you might have this in red letters. Uh, I believe, though um, we have good, very good translations that would say that this is still Jesus talking, uh, the reality is it's very hard in the Greek text to know um, who is actually talking. They didn't have quotation marks a lot of the time. It's usually just context that is going to determine it. And I think the context here would say that this is actually John the Gospel writer beginning to talk again from verse 16 to um, summarize and to explain what has just happened in Jesus's account, encounter with Nicodemus. So Jesus is talking and the quotation marks end in verse 15 and John the gospel writer comes in. And just a few quick reasons why I believe that's the case. Number one, because uh, rarely, if ever, does Jesus actually refer to God the Father as simply God. He is almost always saying, my Father. But here we have numerous times just the word God. Secondly, you have this word here in verse 16 only, which is the word monogonase, where we get mono and, 
uh, gene or the word we get genetics from, unique genetics or only born, unique born, however you want to translate it. That's a word that never comes off the lips of Jesus. But John, the gospel writer, uses it uh, quite a bit. And here we have that in verse 16. So it seems like this is John, the gospel writer, who is now, he's recorded what Jesus has said to Nicodemus, and now he is giving his comments and saying, this is how God has loved the world and flowing on from that. So the context is very much still in what we went over last week in the new birth and Jesus uh, giving this um, phrase of just as Moses lifted up the serpent in verse 14 in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And then John the Gospel writer comes in and says in verse 16, for God so loved the world, or rather in this way, God so loved the world. The word for for is a word that means in this way. So based off what has just been said, in this way, God has loved the world so that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. This passage is all about how God has loved the world. And this is what we will look at today, various aspects that underpin this beautiful um, truth that God indeed loves the world. And what we should understand about this is the use of the world. So does John, the gospel writer, believe that God loves the world uh, unconditionally, completely, as in every single person? In one sense, of course, God's love does extend to all people in the world. But there's a particular use behind the idea of the world here, which actually displays even more of God's love for the world. So firstly, remember that this is in a thoroughly Jewish context. People of Israel knew that God loved the children of Israel. But to love the world, to love filthy Gentiles who weren't allowed into the temple, uh, the sanctuary, does God indeed love them? And of course, we have allusions like the book of Jonah and other areas through the um, Old Testament, Psalm 87, this idea of God's love actually extending to the Gentiles. But perhaps this is one of the most explicit ways in which if you're a Jew hearing this and you're hearing John, the gospel writer, saying God so loved the world, it's saying God's love extends beyond the children of Israel to every believer from every tongue, tribe, nation, and language. This is how God's love extends. And secondly, we should understand that the use of the word world in John's writing is almost always used in a negative sense or a neutral sense sometimes, never really in a positive sense. So sometimes he uses the word world in a neutral sense, like he's just talking about the world in terms of John 1.10, um, the world came about through him, that is through Jesus, talking about creation or talking about location. Jesus was leaving the world. That's just neutral. But a lot of the time, it's in a negative sense. So John says, do not love the world. Don't be surprised if the world hates you. The whole point of God sending his son into the world is because there is something fundamentally wrong with the world. That is sin. It's diseased. It's sick. There's something wrong with the world. That's why God has to send his son into the world. And this is the key to John's point of saying how God has loved the world. God's love is displayed toward the world 
because the world in its natural state isn't all that lovable. There's not all that much that is lovable about a fallen, broken world that is corrupted by sin. And this is the marvelous thing about God loving the world. Now, we see this because remember the context here. So verses 14 to 15, we went over last week. Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man. That's the exact same word so as the word we have for four here. So it's like Jesus saying, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, in this way must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, why did the snakes come in the wilderness? Because the Israelites were grumbling and complaining, and they were speaking against God. So he sent fiery serpents into the wilderness, and many were killed, many perished. But then in his mercy, he said, right, Moses, make a bronze serpent, hold it up, and whoever looks at the serpent who has been bitten will be cleansed, will be healed of their sickness. They will not die. So the context is these grumblers and complainers in the wilderness, and God judges them, in a sense, by sending these fiery serpents among them. Now, this sounds a lot like the state of the world. Are we not a people full of grumbling and complaining and speaking against God? Is this not the natural state of man, grumbling and complaining? We see it all the time when we have uh, beautiful summer weather like this. It gets too hot. We're complaining about the heat. We want it to be cold. Naturally, every Canberran complains about the winter. We're just naturally complaining and grumbling about little tiny things. We curse God in our heart, this beautiful world that he's created, and we uh, spit in his face. So this is the context of people grumbling and complaining. And John, the gospel writer, after Jesus has just said, now as Moses lifted up the bronze servant, because people were grumbling and complaining, but God provided a way of salvation, a way of deliverance. John, the gospel writer, is now saying in verse 16, in this way, God has loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him, just as those who looked upon the snake would be healed, all who trust in Christ will be cured, will be healed of their disease of sin. Just as God had mercy upon the grumblers and complainers in the desert, God has mercy upon the grumblers and complainers of the world by sending his son to die the death of a sinner that we would be healed. This is how God has loved the world. Now, let's look closer at exactly how God has displayed this love to the world. What are the aspects of how God has displayed this love from this passage? The first one is that God is a giver. He displays his love toward the world because he gives. And he's not just any giver, Look at what he gives. Of course, we can give many things. I could give a half-eaten sandwich to you. That wouldn't necessarily display that I'm all that loving. The point is in what he gives. So why is it that this displays his love? There are two main reasons why this displays his love, why the act of giving his son displays his love. Firstly, because of the cost. Secondly, because of the circumstance. So think of the cost. 
It is because of the immeasurable worth of that which God the Father gives to the world that displays his love. He gives the life of his perfect and innocent son. It is the value, the sheer immeasurable value of that which God the Father gives that displays his immense love. We think of Abraham being called to give his only son. Parents here or non-parents, think of your loved one, your husband or your wife or mother or father. Imagine giving your loved one up, knowing that they were going to die and having to watch them die. Abraham was given that test of giving Isaac. And Abraham demonstrated his love because of the sheer value. That was the son of the promise. Abraham gave him. Of course, it wouldn't have been the same if Abraham simply had to sacrifice a ram. It was the fact that he gave, he was willing to give his only son, which of course was foreshadowing what God the Father would do to display his love. The cost is what shows the love in God giving. Secondly, the circumstance. The second reason why this act of giving displays his love is because he gives while we are enemies. Again, God shows his love in that he comes to a world full of grumblers and complainers who speak against him and still gives. The circumstances are that we are by nature children of wrath. We are hostile. We are enemies in our minds. And still he gives. The cost and the circumstance display his love in this act of giving. In this way, God loved the world. Secondly, The second aspect which displays his love toward the world is that he clearly demonstrates his desire is to save. So verse 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God could have left us to our natural state, which is where we are hostile and rebellious to him. He could have rightfully done that and he would have been perfectly just in condemning all to hell. He would have been perfectly just in doing that. And that's partly why John records here, he feels the need to say, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world because that's what probably should have happened. Logically, that's what should have happened to a people who had rebelled and who were so corrupt that they were actually hostile and enemies to God that he should, and of course we know will, send his son again eventually to condemn. But in the incarnation, in Jesus' coming, he doesn't send his son to condemn. So the question should never be, why doesn't God save more? That's the wrong question. The question should be, why does God save anyone? He doesn't need to. He would be a perfectly just judge to condemn all who have turned against him and rebelled to hell. The question is never, why doesn't God do more for us? The question is, why does he do so much? Why does he save anyone? And this is how his love is shown. He sends his son not to condemn, but to save. God's love is seen in that he does not desire, he does not delight in the death of the wicked. He doesn't take pleasure. He's not up there rubbing his hands waiting to punish people. He doesn't delight in that. He delights 
in saving. He says in Ezekiel 18, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone. I do not take pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. And then he says, so turn and live, be saved. That's his desire. That's what he delights in to save. So God reveals his love to us in that he reveals his desire is to save. These are the first two aspects. God shows his love as he gives his son and he gives his son as a savior, demonstrating that his desire is to save. The third aspect that displays his love is that he provides a sacrificial substitute. This is the how. This is how he saves because there is, a sac- there is a sacrificial substitute. So John says, just look at verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Why is there no condemnation? We know it isn't because God was feeling extra forgiving, decided to wipe it away. It's because someone has taken our condemnation. That's why there is no condemnation, because someone has taken our condemnation. A substitute has taken the judgment. Without a substitute, there remains condemnation upon us. So this is one of the, I believe, most important issues of our theologically light or theologically deprived day, which is this idea of what are we actually believing in? When it says here, whoever believes in him is not condemned, we're of course not believing in some weird abstract idea, which is often the way many people in the society understand it as sort of this cosmic genie God who kind of poof provides a way out and it's this abstract idea We're not simply trusting in that. We are trusting in the concrete reality that Jesus Christ has lived the life that we were called to live but could not, and he has died the death that we deserved but was spared. We are trusting in his life. Jesus isn't simply the substitute that just at the very end takes our place at his death. He is our substitute at his birth where God takes on flesh to recreate humanity. He is our substitute in his life, where he lives the perfect life of obedience to the Father's will, being tried and tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. He is our substitute in his death, where he takes our punishment upon himself. And he is our substitute in his resurrection, where he is raised to life, which gives us the new life in him. Without all of this, we have no hope of a saviour who can genuinely give us the righteousness that we need to stand before a holy God. But because Jesus has lived the life of perfect obedience and he has died the death of one cursed, there is now a righteousness available to us, which means in him, in Jesus, in that life that he has lived, in the death that he died and by us trusting in him we are brought into him which is why in him there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus that's why because there has been a substitute to live the life that we could not and to die the death that we deserve so for us there is no condemnation there is simply the father's loving stamp of approval that's it what a beautiful reality that the father has nothing but his pleasure in you because you are in Christ 
where there is no condemnation, so that even his discipline is love poured out to us. So we see God's love in that he gives his son to save as the sacrificial substitute. Fourthly, and the final aspect of how we see his love, he offers eternal life. This is back to the end of verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. What is this eternal life? Eternal life, some of you would know, it's literally uh, life of the age or life of the age to come. The reason why we understand it that way is because of how it is used in, in Hebrew. The context of life of the age is eternal life. It's it's not so much about solely a futuristic idea, uh, but about this abundant life of this particular age and the resurrection age at that. So to understand this, think back to Genesis 2. We remember Genesis 2 after the creation account, and we read in Genesis 2 of the tree of life that is in the midst of the garden. And God tells Adam and Eve not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but they do, uh, sin enters the world, they are cast out. And then we read in Genesis 3, verse 22, God is actually speaking um, after they have been cast out and saying that they must not come back in. And we read, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. And the literal uh, translation of live forever is live to the age. So God is saying they can't, now that sin has entered, they can't come in and eat from the tree of life lest they live to the age. They can't because there's sin now. They can't enter that. It's impossible to come back and live to the age now that there is sin. The only way that we can receive this eternal life is by someone who comes from that life, who comes from life of the age. That's the only way that we can actually receive this life and be restored to this place before sin entered the world, where the tree of life is in the midst of the garden. We need someone who is not tainted by our age, which is an age of death and condemnation, to come and bring us back in so that we would receive life of the age. And this is the ongoing theme throughout John's gospel. Think about how often he talks about life. He begins in chapter one, in him, in Jesus is life. And the life is the light of man. Jesus says, uh, rather John records, in him is life, or Jesus comes to give life and life abundantly. It is this life that is life of the age because Jesus is the bridge between heaven and earth who comes to give this life of the age. It is in Jesus that we come to experience this life. So think about John 17. In John 17, we have this high priestly prayer. And Jesus is praying to the Father right before he's about to go to the cross. And he says, Father, this is eternal life, that they, the disciples, know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is eternal life, that they know you, God the Father, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is life of the age. We receive it as we come to know God in Christ. And so in this way, eternal life 
we experience actually as a foretaste now and await the fullness of. This is the incredible thing about God's loving gift toward us. It's like we are placed back on a trajectory to where the first man was in the garden where the tree of life is there. And God said, no, 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 they can't have this now lest they live to the age, lest they have eternal life because God is going to provide the substitute to bring that life so that in Jesus, it's like we are placed not only back to the garden, but on a trajectory that extends way beyond that to the new heavens and new earth. We read about the tree of life being placed there and that will be life of the age. It's the age to come and we experience that as a foretaste now. Now, I know that's a bit of a possibly an abstract theological idea. So let me give a definition of eternal life just to help summarize that. Eternal life or life of the age is the rich and abundant life that is solely found in Jesus, which we experience as a foretaste now and await its fullness. Eternal life is the rich and abundant life that is solely found in Jesus, which we experience as a foretaste now and await its fullness. So we see God's love in that he has given his son to save as the sacrificial substitute to give us eternal life. Now, as we move on in the passage, what about those who reject this? Read through verses 18 to 20. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. So in one sense... God didn't send his son into the world to bring condemnation or judgment. Condemnation and judgment are the same idea there. God didn't send his son to condemn, but that's because there's already condemnation. There's already condemnation upon all who do not believe. It's not like everyone is in a neutral state and God sends the son And Jesus comes and says, right, you're off to condemnation. You're off to salvation. No, everyone is in condemnation. Everyone has rejected God. Everyone has turned away. Condemnation is on there. Jesus isn't coming to a people of neutral state who have the ability to either trust in him or not. He is coming to a people who are already under condemnation. They have not believed in his name. And John describes the ultimate evidence of their condemnation as this in verse 19. The light came into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. The judgment is that though light has come, people love darkness. And this is the misconception that a lot of people have. Some of you may have this as well. Certainly, you've probably experienced this from other people, non-Christians, who think that people would actually want to follow Jesus in their natural state. 
They think that people would actually want to follow Jesus. And God just isn't revealing himself enough to do this. God just isn't trying hard enough to show Jesus. Or, by nature, people actually have good intentions to worship God. People are actually good and they have the right intentions to worship God. They're just a bit misguided. That's an absolute lie. That's totally unbiblical. All people by nature hate God. No one seeks after him. God reveals very early on in Genesis 6, every intention of the thoughts of man's heart is only evil continually. I don't think there could be a more clearer passage, a more clearer way of God saying, wow, humanity is evil at their core. Every intention of the thoughts of man's heart is only evil continually. That's a bleak picture. And despite this, God extends his arm of salvation. Despite this, he pours out his love by sending his son into the world, into the very people who hate him, who reject him. He sends his son as light of the world. This is how God loves the world. He pours out light into a world of darkness. But people love the darkness more than the light. Imagine if you, maybe you've done this before, maybe for a day or two, but imagine if for several weeks you lived in a completely dark room. No light at all. Imagine living in that. You would become conditioned after a few days to become fearful of light. Light would hurt the slightest bit of light. I know there's every morning coming in and Lewis wakes up and he's wide-eyed because it's dark and then I put the blinds up a tiny bit and it pierces his eyes and he shuts them again. It's the tiniest bit of light. If you are in a dark room, you become conditioned to actually want to stay away from light. It's piercing and penetrating. It's not nice. It's not pleasant. And though it might be initially painful for light to come in, it's objectively, undeniably true for you who would live in a dark room for weeks on end to get some light. You need light. Now, this is what it's like to be in this fallen world. To be brought up in this fallen world, it's like we have just naturally become accustomed to living in a world in a, in a room of darkness. And light feels unwanted. It's penetrating. It hurts eyes. It exposes things that you didn't want to see. And it remains objectively true. For all people in this world, though they love the darkness, that it is undeniably good for them to come to the light. But the problem is that they love darkness. They've been conditioned by this world of sin to hate the light. So therefore, a miracle must happen. A miracle has to happen. Light has to penetrate in such a way that though it is initially painful, it has to penetrate in such a way that people are drawn to that light. And this is the miracle of the new birth, where darkness is driven out and people rightfully see light 
the light. In Psalm 36, it says, in your light do we see light. We don't even know what is light until God shines his light and illuminates it to us. And then we know what is good. And the only way for this is by the miracle of the new birth, which we have gone over, which is the context of this passage. As people who were once in darkness are brought to the marvelous light of Christ as he shines the light of the gospel of the glory of God into the hearts of men and awakens them to the wonder of Christ. And this is why Christ calls his church, you and I, to be light of the world, to be the vessels which God has appointed to bring about the knowledge of Christ. So to summarize, people love darkness more than light and evil rather than good. And all of us left to our own devices will follow this. We are conditioned to live in a world of darkness, but in God's mercy, he has illuminated us to the light so that in his light, we see what is good. We see what is lovable and honorable and worthy of praise. And he calls us to live in the light. This brings us to our last point. How do we respond to this? Look at verse 21. In contrast to everyone who does wicked things and them hating the light, we have verse 21. Whoever does what is true comes to the light. This idea can be summarized by simply saying, in verse 20 and 21, there are those who act unfaithfully and then those who act faithfully. To do what is true is to act faithfully. Faith and truth are the same word, the same idea. So all those who believe in the Son of God and receive eternal life will act faithfully. They will live by the truth. And here's where this is all linked to the new birth, where we went over last week. Remember in verse 8, Jesus is talking about the new birth. He's just explained this to Nicodemus. And in verse 8, he says the wind, remember that's the same word for spirit, but the wind here, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So, or in this way, it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Jesus says that the spirit is like wind. It blows about. The way that you know it is there is by the effect. You know there's wind because you see the effects of it. You see trees blowing. You hear wind rustling. Likewise, you know someone is born again because something happens. Something happens. There is an, an undeniable effect. Something has happened. If a tree isn't moving... And if you can't hear anything, then you conclude, no wind, lovely still day. If that tree starts to blow about like a gale, you know it is windy. So if nothing changes in someone's life, if nothing changes in the life of someone who professes to follow Jesus, if there is no direction toward what is good, if there is no adoration being given toward Christ, if there is no desire to meditate upon the word, at least in part, then you conclude no spirit. This is what Jesus is saying. The wind blows, you see its effect. It's there. You can see it's windy because things are happening. 
so it is with all those who are born of God. And sure, sometimes it may take months or even years, even as I think, probably for most people, I have quite a radical transformation from being a 21-year-old unbeliever doing all sorts of things to then a 23-year-old. But even for me, over that period of two years, it felt very slow. I certainly didn't have a desire to put to death sin immediately, but still there was something happening. Over the course of time, we see the effects. So therefore, everyone who is born again will practice what is true, will act faithfully, and they will come to the light. The Apostle John is even clearer about this in his first letter. When he says in 1 John 3, 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep sinning because he has been born of God. That's quite, I mean, John's very black and white. No one born of God cannot continue making a practice of sinning. They can't stay in unrepentant sin. It's impossible because Christ's seed is in them. The Spirit will produce an effect. The Spirit will actually work within them to grow them in holiness, to grow them in the grace of God, which teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright lives. John is saying the same thing here. If someone has been born of God, there's going to be a new trajectory in their life. It will be a trajectory away from sin and a trajectory toward holiness, toward righteousness, toward desiring to do what is good. That's what will happen. That's the goal of the Christian life, to have this trajectory, to be conformed more and more to the likeness of Christ, who is perfect. And this is the reality that we have to be faced with. The goal of the Christian life is our holiness, our sanctification, that we may glorify God, that we would be perfect as He is perfect, very high standard. And the reality that we have to face ourselves with is that we, of course, don't reach that goal until Christ finishes everything. But that shouldn't then throw us all the way back to the other end of the spectrum, have no desire to reach that goal. There should be a trajectory. We should demonstrate that we are on our way toward that goal. There should be evidence of grace in your life. It's like if you imagine someone running a 100-meter race and you've got the lanes there, the way that you know someone is genuinely running that race is because they're drawing closer to the finish line. You can see there's progress being made. If the gun goes off and someone starts running sideways, they're not in the race anymore. They're not on that path. They're not on that trajectory. I don't know what they're doing, but they're not reaching the goal. Nothing is happening in their life. They're chaotic. They're off. We should be on the path of discipleship, the path of trajectory toward that goal. And some of us will do it in a bit more of a sprint. Others of us will do it crawling, struggling every bit of the way, but there will be an undeniable mark of progress, a, an evidence where we are reaching that goal. Those who come to the light live in faithfulness to what God calls them to. There is evidence that something has happened that keeps them on this trajectory toward Christ's likeness. They come to the light. They want what is good. And why will this happen? We read here the very end of 21. 
so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. That's the goal. To have such a life that suggests there has been some form of transformation. Something has happened. A work of the Spirit produces a life within us that those who look on would have no other conclusion than to say God has done this. Their works have been carried out in God. That's very clear by their life. So if this is the case, here's an application to just life as a church. If this is the case, if the purpose is for those who have been saved by the gracious work of God to then live faithfully in order to demonstrate that their works have been carried out in God, which is to bring glory to Him, if that's the purpose, then why would we try and create an environment where it is so easy to profess to be a follower of Jesus? Why would we try and create an environment where it is so easy to simply call yourself a Christian? Why would we create an environment where the basic requirements for someone to be affirmed as a follower of Jesus is that they just show up to a place for a few hours on a Sunday and that's it? When would we ever look at someone else's life and say, I noticed that they go somewhere for two hours on a Sunday. God must be up to something. That's costly. That's really difficult. They drove 20 minutes, which by Canberra standards is huge. Even then, there's not going to be much evidence of God in them. That's just normal things. If anything, there's plenty of... I remember being a young uh, sports player and dedicating hours and hours of my week to what I loved. It's quite a shameful thing for those who profess to follow Jesus to struggle to dedicate a couple more hours a week to gathering with God's people. It's a shameful thing. So we should not try and create an environment where we affirm people based on these very low levels that Scripture does not have, where we kind of think, well, it's irrelevant if they don't have a desire to pray or it's irrelevant whether they read the Bible or not. Hey, they're showing up. And yes, maybe for someone who has come out of a really rough environment, that's a wonderful sign of fruit. The fact that they're not going out to a club until 6 a.m. in the morning and they're actually waking up and coming, that is a wonderful mark of fruit. But there should be progress. Remember with the example of the 100-meter race, you can't run 50 meters and then start going sideways or backwards. That's dangerous. There should be progress. Now, I'm not saying that we have to put unnecessary barriers. Of course not. We do not put unnecessary barriers. I am merely saying that we should be very careful to leave the expectations of disciples of Jesus where Scripture leaves them, which if you have a read of Scripture, is quite a high bar. So we should not cloud the high bar of discipleship in Scripture with comfortable, consumer-driven, pseudo-Christianity. We should not allow what is required of a follower of Jesus to be clouded by buying into this consumer-driven church as a commodity where it's purely based on entertainment and just whoever comes, it's great. More bums on seats, that's meeting the requirement. 
Instead of this, we should press on into a deeper level of discipleship where actually the safety railings are taken off. And we then experience the work of God's Spirit in our lives. It's actually an opportunity to trust that the Spirit of God will work good fruit in us as we take our hands off of the safety railings, as we actually press into something that we could not do in and of ourselves. Where instead of being self-centered and arranging our lives purely around what is best for us, we become other-centered and arrange our lives around what is best for our brothers and sisters being available for them. Where instead of living safe lives where the goal is just good career, good family, few thrills with vacation pictures, post-retirement safety, instead of all of this, We live costly lives where the goal is the glory of God in everything, where we would live in such a way we would have this unusual hope that, again, would actually make people ask a reason for the hope that is in us, because it is different. Where instead of the low commitment levels that are often characteristic of our culture, where people are very non-committal, we actually display a high level of commitment to a body of people where there is nothing all that obvious about what we have in common. I think that's a beautiful thing about the church where you can have such a high level of commitment to people and if someone was to look in, they would be like, why are you hanging out with you? Nothing. What do you have in common? Well, nothing other than our devoted allegiance to Christ our Saviour, which is more than enough to give us a common bond that is unbreakable. These things can only be carried out by the work of God's Spirit within us as we press on into deeper discipleship. And when they do, it suggests something is very clearly going on. Just like if it's a windy day, you look outside, trees are blowing everywhere, you know it's windy. And when followers of Jesus commit to this high bar of discipleship, out of our unshakable allegiance to Christ and our commitment to brothers and sisters and gathering with God's people, serving those around us, when we commit to this, then people conclude it's getting windy. Something is happening. God is working within these people. So this is the goal. Works carried out by God so that he will get all of the glory. And if we hold on to safety railings with low commitment, self-centered lives, there is no glory being given to God. As we press on deeper into this, with unshakable allegiance to Christ and his community, the body of his people, then people conclude there's a gale coming Things are happening. Glory is going to God. Let's pray that this would happen. Father, we humble ourselves before you. We pray that you would convict us now of whatever self-centeredness there is, of whatever clinging to sin there is in our lives, where we are loving darkness more than light. We pray that you would grant us the grace to say no to that and by all of the power that you work within us by your spirit, we would press on 
we would make progress. We would desire to make much of Christ in our lives. Lord, it, it brings glory to you where people demonstrate an unshakable allegiance to your name that is expressed in a commitment to your people, in a commitment to do what is good, in a commitment to make your name known, in a commitment to love our neighbour as ourself, in a commitment to live humbly. And we express our utter dependence upon you to bring this about. You must do this just like Daniel prayed as your sanctuary was desolate, as your whole city was destroyed. And he pleaded with you to do this, not for his name, but because of your name and the fact that they bear your name and we bear your name. And so we ask that you would do this for your namesake, that you would bring glory to your name as we follow in obedience. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.